Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Rob Simulcare is an impressive guy with an impressive resume. Horace Mann High School in New York, Dartmouth College, Harvard Law School, jobs at some big-time New York law firms, then behind the scenes and on-air positions at ESPN and NBC. Sure, there have been hills and valleys along the way for Simulcare, and by the way, that's how you pronounce it. It's Danish, and when you see it in print, you're going to need a pronunciation guide. He's impressive, and he's quite busy. That's because he's now the CEO of New York Roadrunners, and we had this conversation about a week and a half before the 2023 New York City Marathon. So, Rob, a couple of weeks out from the marathon, New York City Marathon, and a uh, pretty quiet time for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're all just kind of hanging out. Uh, you know. <laughs> where are you going on vacation for the next couple of weeks? You know, uh, my office basically is where I'm yeah. going, Staten Island. I'm going on vacation to Staten Island. No, it's obviously a busy time, um, an exciting time at New York Roadrunners. It is, it's our big day. Um, you know, the first Sunday, November is the day that everybody who works at Roadrunners, you know, lives for and looks forward to all year long. So knowing a little bit about the Roadrunners from previous stories I've done and, and being a runner in New York City, uh, I would imagine, uh, forget about double figures, I would imagine it's triple figures, the number of little things that come up the minutiae that you and your team, of course, it's a team effort, have to deal with. Can you give me an example of something that came up uh, that crossed your desk or your colleagues that was like, wow, you know, we never, no names are important, but wow, we never saw that one coming or we never saw that one before. Oh, gosh, um, that's a tricky question. I mean, Bud, you're right. There are a ton of things and a lot of moving parts that go on with putting on an event at the scale of the TCS New York City Marathon. We got 50,000 runners coming in. We got plus ones and plus twos as well coming into the city who will accompany their runner to maybe the TCS New York City Marathon Expo or one of our events. So there's just a lot that goes on. I'm trying to think of a, a, a there's some, you know, there are big things, there are little things. You know, of course, the weather is always a thing that we're keeping an our, our eye on. I'm starting to get the, the daily long-range weather forecasts that give us a sense of what we're likely to be looking at. Um, and knock on wood, it's looking pretty decent as the a time you and I are speaking right now, but that could still change, so I don't want to get too far out ahead. You know, it's things like the food that we're serving at, at our events, the, the, the drinks and the beverages and making sure we have enough of it all along the marathon course and that it's distributed in the right way. You know, we've got a number of volunteer training sessions that are starting this week from our medical volunteer staff, who are the people who are there in the medical tents to make sure if anybody's got an issue, they're taken care of, to our broader volunteer training for every single one of the thousands of volunteers that we have coming in to Expo or Marathon Day being a part of this and making sure that they have a great experience and that they represent Roadrunners well and the marathon well. So there, it's, it's like a small military operation, bud, you know, mm -hmm. putting this thing together. Uh, it's just really a big, big, you know, and complicated task. Do you think the fact that you ran it in some tangible way uh, affects the way that you and your team run it now? 
A hundred percent. It definitely does. I'd say about, my guess is probably 75% of our staff here are runners and many of them have run the TCS New York City Marathon at some point. So I do bring that perspective to decisions that I make. You know, what would I want as a runner when it comes to the experience, when it comes to the transportation to the starting line, where I'd be spending my time before the race starts. Everybody at the start of a marathon, especially the first timers, there's a tremendous amount of nerves. You know, there's nervous energy and we want to make sure that they're feeling good, that they've got what they need in terms of water and and and, and food and bathrooms and all that to be ready for the time that the gun goes off. And then of course there's, you know, the course itself, there's the finish, there's the process of even picking up your your bib before the race and going to the expo and the shopping experience and all of that. So being a runner helps a lot in terms of the way we all think about making this a great experience for everybody. No doubt about it. You mentioned the bathrooms. When I was still in the running to run this year before I got hurt uh, and was training. And the first time I spoke to a New York Roadrunners person about the experience, and I had spoken to other runners who had run it. uh, My first question was, there are bathrooms all along the way, right? And the person said to me, is that your major concern? And I was like, yeah, that's my major <laughs> concern. <laughs> yeah, the 26 miles. Yeah, of course I'm concerned about that. But yeah, I need to know at every moment. And obviously that's a big thing. You know, most runners, if they are, let's say they're quick enough that they think they're going to run a sub four hour marathon, they are definitely hoping that they will not have to visit a bathroom over the course of running the race. Because usually if you're running up under four and you do have to do that, it means something's gone wrong. You know, there's, you didn't plan out what you drank and what you ate accordingly, or maybe you drank or ate something that didn't agree with you mm-hmm. and you're having some issues. You know, the podcast that I co-host with Meb Kofleski, our podcast, it's called Set the Pace. Meb won the marathon in 2009, but he had some experiences along the way where one of the stories he tells is went to a dinner with some friends and family a couple nights before the marathon and something didn't sit right. There was some food poisoning and mm-hmm. he had to go to the bathroom, I think, three or four times during a race. And of course, that year he just didn't finish, finish anywhere close to the front of the race. So those are usually bad days for the fast runners if they're finding a lot of bathrooms. But, but bathrooms are key for everybody before the race because it's actually really important that you time out when you take in fluids, when you go to the bathroom, you want to show up on that starting line, ideally hydrated, yet not needing to go anytime soon. And that's kind of a gentle balance that you have to find uh, when it comes to timing your bathroom break. So there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah, that's a gentle balance that I, I search for on a daily basis when I'm not preparing <laughs> for a race. So, um, I just want you to know this is the most I've talked about bathrooms in any excellent. of my interviews. So well, far, oh, so. we're just getting started on you the bathroom You got to the front. good stuff. Yeah. yeah excellent. <laughs> well, when it comes to running the race, about 20 years ago at New York One, we had Tegel Larupe in studio, who was just terrific. And uh, I made a promise to her that I would one day run the New York City Marathon. So I still have to keep that promise to Tegel. I've heard you describe this job as a dream job. And you've had some jobs uh, that, as we say in New York, have not exactly been chopped liver. Uh, <laughs> you know, prestigious uh, law firms and ESPN and NBC. Uh, what made this, at this time in your life, a dream job? But you know, I'm a native New Yorker. I think you are as well. And when you grow up around New York, this is one of the great institutions of our city, you know? 
the New York City marathons a day, I can remember going back to my childhood. I remember the excitement of it. I remember watching it on TV. I got to watch it once go by with my grandparents. And I just thought, wow, this is like a really huge day in New York. It's great not just for the runners. It's great for the entire city because everybody comes out to support. They root for strangers. They, they all come together. And so to have a chance to be in this role of presiding over this institution and this greatest day of the year in New York City is an incredible honor for a, a native New Yorker who also runs. I've spent my career in sports and I've loved every minute of it. I think what's special about this organization and this event is that, yes, we all love sports. I love the, you know, the Giants and the Mets. Those are my teams. I love going out and rooting for those teams to do well and win championships. Not enough as I would like, but especially, <laughs> especially the Mets. The Giants, yes. The Mets, not so much. But it's not about that. It's about every single one of the 50,000 stories that shows up at our starting line. And it's about every single person whose life we change all year long by bringing them into the sport of running, giving them a chance to experience the incredible benefits, physical health, mental health, all of that from the sport of running. That to me is what it's all about. It's the balance between the business of sports, but more importantly, the mission of the organization to help and inspire people through running. Before we get to the, the mental health aspect, and I know that's a, a prominent uh, thing for you. Do you recall when you were watching the race as a kid with your grandmother and grandfather, do you remember where you were? I remember, it's actually kind of a funny story. I haven't told this story before. My grandparents lived on the Upper West Side, 97th between Columbus and Amsterdam. And we were out one day just kind of doing stuff around the city. And my grandparents were not into running. I don't think any of them, I don't think either of them had ever run, you know, really to run that mm -hmm. I can recall. Maybe run from something or after a cab or something. But we were just out in the city. And we were going to the east side to, to I think we were going to go to a museum or something. I, don't, I, I think they didn't even know the marathon was going on. <laughs> and we ended up hitting the marathon as it came down Fifth Avenue. And we just kind of got stuck. Like it was, they were kind of like, oh, what is going on? A parade? What's happening? And, and we were like, oh, this is the marathon. And I remember just watching for a while. Why, and I was like, what are these people doing and why and what is going on? And it was after that that I realized what the marathon was and how many people did it and what it was all about. So that was my first exposure to it. And, I, and then it was many years later, Bud, when I was at law school in Boston, I ended up at the finish line of the Boston Marathon because I went to the Patriots Day Red Sox game one day, right. uh, which is the day they play at like 11 a.m. in Boston because the marathon's mm -hmm. a holiday in Massachusetts. And after the Red Sox game, I went out, watched people finishing the Boston Marathon, and I was like, okay, I need to do this. I need mm -hmm. to run this one of these days. And the very next week, I mailed in an application to get into the New York City Marathon, and I ran it that year. That's pretty great. Uh what would you like to see tangibly New York Roadrunners do looking towards the future in terms of mental health in New York City? You know, it's interesting. We talk, I talk a lot about mental health and running. And a lot of folks have said, oh, this is a new thing. This is new. The CEO of New York Roadrunners talking about mental health. It may be a little new in how much I'm talking about it, but it really isn't new at all in terms of the mental health impact that a running organization like New York Roadrunners is having. Because anyone who's ever run 
any significant amount in their lives knows how it makes them feel, how you feel during a run and then especially after the run. We have this thing people call the running high. It's something folks talk about, the high you get while running a long distance or after. And there are scientific explanations for it, endorphins and all these things. But for me, it's just a feeling of relaxation, of a release, and a sense of accomplishment that I get, whether I go out and run three miles or run the New York City Marathon. I feel like I did something good for myself that day. And the momentum that gives me is something that I have found really staves off negative moods, you know, de- you know, mild depression, whatever you might call it. And we're seeing that, bud. We're seeing how many people have found that running is an essential part of their day-to-day life. You know, since I joined as CEO last December, pretty much every race that we have put on has been sold out. And that's not uncommon. This is happening all over the running industry. And the reason for it, we believe, is that so many people found running during the pandemic when there was nothing else you could do. There were no, you couldn't go to a gym. You couldn't you know, meet people to play basketball with, whatever. So you just ran and you could run alone and you were outside and it was safe. And people found it and realized what it did for them. And so many of them have just kept on running. And so we're seeing another running boom here in New York, which has made it so hard, frankly, for people to even get into the TCS New York City Marathon. And we're thrilled to see that. We want to keep growing that more and more. You moved to northern New Jersey when you were a kid, yes? Yeah, I was born in Manhattan, moved to northern New Jersey when I was very young and lived in New Jersey till about, well, for my, my entire childhood. But my parents sent me back to school in New York in seventh grade. So I went to school up in Riverdale in the Bronx from seventh grade through 12th grade. So for a lot of my childhood, I really was sleeping in New Jersey and coming back to New York to do just about everything else. I was a commuter kid from seventh grade on. Yeah. Growing up, what were the the themes in the home, either spoken or unspoken? So first and foremost, my parents were always very focused on education. Um, They were both... uh, are both, I should say, college educated. They actually met at City College of New York, CCNY, up in Harlem. My dad grew up in Harlem. My mom grew up in Virginia, a town called Danville, Virginia, which was, at the time she grew up, a segregated town in in Southern Virginia. She was an African-American woman, um, couldn't you know, go to the college she'd hoped to go to, UVA, because they weren't really accepting African-American women at that point. So she came to New York, and that's where she met my dad. So education was always central to everything in my house, you know, reading books, talking about current events, things that were going on in the world, um, getting great grades, all of that. That was the core. If, if, if you didn't have your grades right, if your school wasn't going well, nothing else mattered in my house. You weren't going to be playing baseball or running or anything else if your grades weren't spot on. So that was number one. Did your mom's experience in Jim Crow is that a history that she talked about a lot or is there like a, a forceful, hey, you have opportunities I didn't have. They, 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 these are earned. People earn these opportunities so that the next generation could have. Yeah, that's a great question. But I knew about what my mom had gone through. I knew about what my dad had gone through, you know, during the 
time they grew up and the civil rights movement and all of that, we always talked about that. We always talked about the role that race plays in America. It's, 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 a, it's something that's ever present, I think, in any African-American family. You're always talking about the role that it may play. But, and this is to your point, it's really important, to be honest, that never, ever was it ever presented to me or to my brother as an obstacle that we could not overcome right. with work. It was never presented as, you know, hey, don't aspire to do this or do that because of your, your race or your anything, right? It, we, we were always, it was always clear to us that we were expected to achieve at the absolute highest level, that there was no excuse, that there was no obstacle that would prevent us from achieving what we wanted to achieve. And so it was something we needed to understand, but never something that was presented to us as a reason to believe any less in ourselves than, than they believed in us, which was really important. How'd you do the commute into Horace? You went to Horace Mann, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, so were you, know, you uh, did you get a ride or were you taking a bus or a train or? Tell you what, this is a story about my mother, Gloria Simulcare, um, who's still with us. You know, she actually is a force of nature. And <laughs> there were a few kids from my part of New Jersey who wanted to go to Horace Mann. There wasn't really a way to get there that was very easy. And my mother was so determined to make this work that she went and found a, a school bus company, the one that, that Horace Mann used, and convinced them to open a new bus route um, to pick up a few kids in the town that I lived in and surrounding towns to get us to Horace Mann. So she created a new school bus, essentially, um, that would pick me up at about seven in the morning from my driveway and drive through the a few towns of New Jersey, down 9W, over the George Washington Bridge, and back up the Henry Hudson Parkway or the Major Deegan up to Riverdale. And so I had about an hour commute both ways. And as you're doing this and going to Horace Mann, are, are, is it a just case of, okay, this is my reality, I'm doing it, and that's great? Or is there any notion of, uh, how come I'm not going to school in town? I remember talking about it, because I did go to public school in town for several years, and there right. were good schools. And I had you know friends who were great and enjoyed it. My parents felt that I wasn't working hard enough, frankly. They saw me, I was getting good grades, and I was watching TV. I'd get home and I'd put on Woody Woodpecker or whatever, and I'd sit around watching TV and hanging out and, and not really appearing to do a lot of work. At least that's what they tell me. And yet my grades were all still straight A's. And so they said, this kid's not working hard enough. We got we to gotta put him somewhere that's going to push him more. <laughs> Classic. If you know my parents, that story won't surprise you at all. So they, that, that was their, that's what they felt I needed. And, you know, I, I didn't question it too much. It, I could have done without the commute. I'm not going to lie. It was a lot. And it, I played sports too, cross country and baseball. So I was getting out of practice at, you know, five something and taking a late bus home. And I'd get home at 6 7 o'clock, eat dinner. Then whatever energy I had left, I had to do some homework and go to sleep. So those were some long days, but it was definitely good for me. Pretty early lesson in time management. There's no question about that. No question about that. And I, and I, I always say about high school, it wasn't always fun for me because of all that, but I know it was good for me. Kind of like broccoli, you know? I like broccoli, but some people don't like broccoli. 
<laughs> I also love the notion that if someone asked you, how come you're going to Horace Mann? You could say, because of Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much, too much cartoon Woody watching. Woody Woodpecker, right. Yeah. So as you head off to college, are you clear on what you think the path might be going forward or even during college? Do you have some notion of, oh, this is, this is what it's going to be for me, or is it all kind of up in the air? I knew when I left high school and went to college, I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, that there were a couple of things I knew I loved. I loved sports and all things about sports. I played baseball at Horace Mann. I wanted to see if I could play a little baseball in college. I you know, walked on and messed around a little bit, but wasn't recruited. But I knew I loved sports and everything about sports. And I also loved public service, politics, the kind of that side of the world, you know, you know, law to a degree, right? My dad was a lawyer, is a lawyer, still practices at 83 years old. So those are the things I knew I loved. And I wasn't quite sure how those things would fit together. But when I got to Dartmouth, I immediately started finding ways to stay involved in things like that. I, you know, got involved with the college radio station and started doing play-by-play for Dartmouth sports and political commentary and coverage for the news side as well. I was really lucky to get there in 1989. And so in 1992, a few years later, the presidential election was going on. And of course, we're in New Hampshire. And so the New Hampshire primary was happening. And I got a chance to do some really cool things from a journalistic point of view covering the presidential election. I got to interview Bill Clinton once at a football game. So I knew that these were things I loved and how exactly it would all fit together, whether I'd go to grad school or straight to a job, whatever, I, I didn't quite figure out. But I knew, Bud, that I probably didn't want to pursue the, the Wall Street path that so many of my classmates were going down. I never interviewed for an investment bank or a consulting firm or any of that. I was sending out tapes to TV stations when I was a senior in high school trying to get a, a job. That's probably something you can relate to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so then is the decision to go to law school, is that, was that a slam dunk, so to speak? Or was that, uh, hmm, uh, well, this is one option that's open to me. So the way that played out, it wasn't really a slam dunk, to be honest. I graduated college, and I didn't have a job or anything really lined up. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was literally sending out tapes to TV stations, hoping to get a job on the air somewhere. I got a short-term job at a TV station in Hartford, Connecticut, worked there for a few months. After that, I started working as a low-level associate at the, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, actually. I worked on the Sports Emmy Awards for a few months. So I was kind of knocking around, waiting to see what was going to come along, didn't have a, a, a long-term job lined up. And my dad, who I may have mentioned is a lawyer. He went to Fordham Law School after graduating from CCNY. Just looked at me one day and sort of said, hey, you know, what, what's the plan here? What, what are you going to do with this Ivy League education you've got? Uh, maybe you should at least take the, the law school admission test. Like, would you at least do that? You don't have to go to law school, but would you at least take the LSAT? And so in exchange for him feeding me and, and keeping me <laughs> under his roof, which he was doing, uh, I did decide a fair exchange would be to take the LSAT. So I, so I took the LSAT and it was the last possible time I could take it and still apply to law school for the following year. 
And I took it and it went pretty well. I got a good score. And so when I got the score back, I said, well, all right, now I still don't quite know what I'm doing. I'll just apply to a few schools and see what happens. And if I get into one of these schools, then I'll consider going. Um, and, and I only applied to three or four schools. And I ended up getting into a few of them. So at that point, things kind of changed. You know, I got a letter back from Harvard Law School accepting me. And it's funny, bud. You know, my, my dad and I were typical young, young man and dad. We didn't always agree. We, we would argue a lot. You know, we would fight a lot you know, in, in, in normal ways, you know, we also would bond over going to baseball games and stuff, but there was definitely that sort of typical headbutting that would go on. But the day I got into Harvard law school, I knew that I probably would never have another fight with my dad again. <laughs> he was, he was so proud and so satisfied that that happened, that it was sort of like everything that had ever been a challenge between us from that point forward was all, it was all good. It was all good. And just seeing that, seeing his and my mom's reaction to that, and also knowing that it was an incredible opportunity for me, mm -hmm. it ended up being a really easy decision once I got in to accept it and to go. So that part was a slam dunk once I actually did get in. How about coming out of it? Because in the 12 minutes that I know you, you strike me as someone who has a variety of interests and passions. And I'm curious if there's a pressure coming out of not just any law school, but coming out of Harvard Law School to follow a particular legal track. Did you feel that way coming out or was there already bubbling in your mind like, OK, I'm going to do this, but there are other things out there I want to do? Definitely the latter. There were definitely other things I thought I might want to do. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do coming out of law school. There was a path that was a very easy to follow path of going to a big New York City law firm, seeing how that played out. And so that was kind of a keep your options open option, right? To just go to a big law firm and see how that felt. And so that's what I did. But I knew that there was a good chance I wouldn't want to stick with this because, bud, when I was at Harvard Law School, I was still sneaking away and going and doing broadcasting stuff. I went and I did pre and post game shows for uh, the Boston Bruins for a while on a radio network. I was actually able to get a couple of little gigs when I was in, in, in law school. I'd sneak away and do stuff like that. So that the passion I had for that never actually went away. And when I was sitting at a big corporate law firm for a couple of years, filing, um, you know, briefs and, and doing research memos and do mostly doing document review. You know, there were definitely some long nights there. And I was like, gosh, is this what I want to do? Not just the junior associate stuff, but I was looking at the partners and thinking, is this the life I want in 10, 15, 20 years? The money was great. There's no question about that. I like that part of it. But the work and, and the, the actual day to day of it was not something that I was confident I wanted. So I didn't end up, you know, staying on that law path for all that long. Does that lead to a conversation at home? Like, folks, I need to talk to you about something. There are gonna be some changes. It did. There were a lot of conversations along the way. Uh, my dad, he went to Fordham Law School, as I mentioned, but he went at night in his 30s. So he wasn't like me getting out of Harvard Law School at 25 years old and 
getting offers from all these big fancy law firms. He was, you know, scrapping pretty hard in the seventies with a, a, a law degree earned at night. So he saw those opportunities and said, well, these are, these are opportunities I never had and you should take advantage of them. And I, I did for a while, but at some point I remember saying to my parents and I said it in, in a lot of situations, I talked about wanting my education to work for me and not having to work for my education. I didn't want the fact that I did these things to limit the past. I wanted it to expand the past that I could possibly take and expand the risks that I could take in my career because I had this background to fall back on. I could mm-hmm. take a chance. I could do something a little bit different because I had a law degree and I figured, you know what? Someone will employ me. Someone will hire me if I go work at an ESPN and turns out I don't like it. But you know that, that was the way I talked about it. And you know, we weren't always seeing eye to eye on that for sure, but they at least respected my my thinking on it because as I said, like I had done I had done what they'd wanted me to do. You know, I had gotten the education, I had done that part, and they gave me the license going forward to make the decisions that I thought were the best ones for me. You worked in the media both behind the scenes and in front of the camera. Are there things you can specific things you can point to to tangible things? that, oh, I, I, I have some sense of that because of my legal background. A lot of things that I draw on my legal background. I mean, there's certainly actual legal things come up. You know, my first, time, my first job at ESPN was I was in the programming department and I was in charge of the NBA on ESPN. They had just done a deal to get the rights to the NBA and I was in charge of managing that property. And they put me in that position. They hired me for that job in large part because I did have a legal background. And people in the sports business used to, I'm not sure if they still say this, but they used to say the MBA actually stood for nothing but attorneys because (laughs) the whole senior staff were lawyers. David Stern, of course, was a lawyer. Adam Silver, the current commissioner, who I worked with a lot back in those days, is a lawyer. So there are a lot of legal elements in, in, in just really but a way of thinking at the end of the day. I mean, that's really what a legal education does is it gives you a way of thinking about things and approaching problems and how to solve problems in an analytical framework. So I recommend to people all the time, go to law school, spend some time practicing law. Even if you're not sure you want to be a lawyer for the rest of your life, it will train your mind to think in a way that others don't necessarily think. And it, it does add a lot of value for me in everything that I've done. And again, those those seemed from the outside to be uh, terrific and interesting, uh, compelling jobs uh, in the media world. And during that time, especially and also at NBC, during that time, is the notion of the New York Roadrunners Club is it is it not in your mind, or is there, or even just in general, is there a sense of yeah, I'm doing really fun things, but there's always other things out there that uh, I find compelling. The New York Roadrunners was in my mind in 1997 when I ran the marathon, and then it was in my mind another 16 years later in 2013 when I ran it for a second time. Other than that, I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time thinking about a career here, but I always knew of it. But to your question, I was always trying to figure out where there'd be a a spot for me that would satisfy the two sides of what I really developed in my career. I mean, I love the sports industry. As you said, I was an executive and I was also on the air 
at ESPN and also at NBC Sports, super unusual background to have to do those things at the same time. And I was very, very lucky to have the opportunity to do that. It was great. So I was really happy in those roles. But at the same time, you know, I always had, remember I mentioned the political side and the public service side of what interested me. And I always was looking for ways to scratch that itch too. You know, I, I, I was involved, I volunteered for a number of political campaigns. It was actually volunteering for the campaign of Bill Bradley in the year 2000. Remember when he ran for president against Al Gore? So he was from New Jersey. I was from New Jersey. So I love Bill Bradley. And it was at a fundraiser for Bill Bradley that was held at Madison Square Garden in the year 2000 that I ran into a guy who I had been an intern of at CBS Sports when I was in college. And it was that guy, a guy named Len DeLuca, who ended up hiring me at ESPN. So politics actually helped me in that way. And so I kept my foot in that door over the years. I ran for office actually locally in Westport, Connecticut, where I moved in 2013. I I ran for office in 2017 there. I was always involved in public service stuff. And when something like New York Roadrunners came along, bud, it was to me the perfect marriage, right? Because it was sports and it was the industry that I spent most of my career in, but it was marrying it to doing something good and something that I felt was real public service that marriage was something that I couldn't say no to. And so that's why it was so exciting for me when the opportunity to come here came along. Bradley is, and I think I'm a generation older than you, I believe, but Brad, I know, actually, I don't believe, I know I am. But (laughs) no, but the point is Bradley is the great example for those of us who love sports growing up. And also there are others as well. It's not just Bill Bradley, Um, but Len Elmore, uh, many, many, uh, the combining the academics and the athletics. I'll give you uh, another name because I'm going to, I'm going to tell him that I shouted out to him on this podcast, a guy named Reggie Williams. Uh-huh. Reggie Williams was a Dartmouth alum, a linebacker and a great college football player at Dartmouth college, ended up going to the Cincinnati Bengals, had a tremendous career as an inside linebacker for the Bengals, played in the Super Bowl in Cincinnati and after he graduated, sorry, after he retired from football, he was a city councilman in Cincinnati. He was involved in politics there. Then he and I ended up connecting years later when he was at Disney uh, in charge of the wide world of sports down at Disney. And I was at ESPN. So he's another of these guys who I saw. Bill Bradley was the, really the classic example of someone who had incredible success in sports and then things beyond sports. And that was a model that I saw in him. And I said, God, I'd love to be able to do something even close to that. It appears like your trajectory is an ascent that's been uninterrupted. Horace Mann, Dartmouth, Harvard Law. You talked about some of the early jobs, you know, doing a couple months here, a couple months there. Uh, and then the, the law firms and then ESPN, NBC, and now uh, New York Roadrunners. But were there times early on where you kind of wondered, whatever it's going to be, is this really going to work out? Did you ever have to deal with the notion of doubt? There were times all along the way when I had doubts. I certainly had doubts over some periods of time when I was at ESPN about whether I did the right thing leaving the law. You know, I, 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 was, I took a pretty significant pay cut to go from a law firm to ESPN. And I certainly had questions along the way. I mean, I was at ESPN for almost a decade. It was a great time, but not always great. You know, there were times when I was like, gosh, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm really achieving my potential here. If I had stayed at a law firm, I'd be a partner by, by now, probably making uh, millions of dollars. And my dad 
did point that out maybe once or twice <laughs> along the way that, you know, questioning a little bit whether I thought I'd made the right decision, right? So there were those doubts, um, you know, at NBC, again, had incredible experiences, but there were times when maybe I didn't get a promotion I wanted or a responsibility I wanted. And then I left NBC in 2019 because I, I was kind of not feeling like I, I was excited about staying there any longer and wanted to try some entrepreneurial things, start a business, do some freelancing. So I went out on my own for a couple of years, which was really hard. And it was even harder in the middle of COVID. I didn't know when I left that I was going to be leaving into a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that was even harder, right? So there were some really tough times. Um, no question about it. It's, you know, it, it may look like a straight line on paper. A lot of people's lives look that way. But when you really dig a little deeper, you see that it's never a straight line. There were plenty of doubts along the way. And, you know, one of the things I talk about with running, bud, is that running is so much similar to life. It's so similar to life and to the challenges we all have in life. And running a marathon is this way because it's hard. You have challenges. You feel pain. You feel doubt along the way, whether you're going to get to the finish line. And there's always the option right in front of you to quit. You can always just stop running. Walk off to the side of the road. It's really easy to do. And the challenge is not to take that off ramp, right? To just always keep going, to keep pushing. That's the way it is in anything hard to do in life. And, and life itself, to be honest, is just to keep going, even though you have the doubts and the pain and you're out of breath and you're cramping up and all of that. And so I, if there's one thing I feel I can say is that I, I have kept going. And I think if you just take that as your mantra and you keep going, no matter what it is that you're facing, you're going to get to whatever the finish lines are that you want in life. That's, that's, that's how I've tried to live. Rob Simulcare. He's the CEO of New York Roadrunners and the co-host of the New York Roadrunners podcast, Set the Pace. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Mm -hmm.